Uh, I don't know if you've ever had contact with a famous person, someone that you just looked up to, you were in awe of that person, and then for whatever happened, you actually came to see them. Uh, And I don't know if you've noticed when that happens, people get weird sometimes, right? Like you see a famous person, you're like, you kind of get tongue-tied, you're not sure what to say, and you act a little weird. I had this experience uh, a couple years back where me and uh, some other pastors, we went to a large conference. And at this conference, we're going to be some godly men who had mentored us from afar. We had read their books and their blogs and listened to their sermons, and we were so excited to be at this conference with like 5,000 other men. And so we gathered together at this conference, and we were in Chicago in uh, the hotel lobby, and it was, we got there early, and so the conference hadn't started yet. We're in the hotel lobby, and me and three of my pastor friends were walking, and we saw this group of three guys who we just we admired these guys. They were heroes to us. We had, they were pastors and authors, and they were just there, just talking to each other. And so, we, we, without saying a word to each other, we all knew who they were. And so we were walking, and all of a sudden, we just slowed our pace a little bit. And uh, we got really quiet. And we kind of looked out of the corner of our eyes, because we didn't want to be creepy people that looked right at them. So we just kind of were doing this thing. Uh, and, then, and then we got past them, and... <laughs> And we noticed that we were all just smiling. Um, and and uh, one of my pastor friends looked at the rest of us and he said, you guys, we just turned into a bunch of little infatuated junior high girls right there. Um, and he was right. We did. We saw these guys and we thought they are so big and powerful. They're these very influential, very significant pastors and authors. And we were a few pastors that are from South Dakota and Nebraska and felt relatively insignificant as we looked at them. And so we didn't approach them. We didn't talk to them. We just giggled uh, and and smiled, um, which is weird. Uh, But this morning, I want to tell you some good news about our God, that, that the truth that these kids just sang to us, that though he's the king of the mountains and the Lord of the seas and the ruler of the heavens, but we still know that God cares about me. And that's, that's a thing that is good for kids to grasp, and it's good for us to grasp. And I hope that you grasp that by the end this morning. That we're going to see that our God is immense. He is not just holy. He is holy, holy, holy. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who made the Big Dipper with simply a word. He is God. He is immense. And when we get a, a, just even a passing glimpse of His glory... Our response ought not to be to giggle and laugh and not talk to him, but to fall to our knees in just humble adoration of who he is. So he is immense, but he is also a God who's personal. And so he is actually approachable. He is a God who is pursuing. He is approaching us in so many ways. He knows everything, yet he cares about the words that I speak. Just think about that. He is present in all places at one time, but He will never leave me to be alone. He's the creator of all things, but He also formed my femur and knit my kneecap. Okay? He is God. He is holy, 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 yet He cares about my life and where I spend eternity. So we're going to see all those things. We see them all throughout Scripture. But by God's grace, we see all of those highlighted in one passage in Psalm 139. And as we go through the Psalms over this summer, 
We're picking all sorts of different psalms. And the title for this sermon is Going to God When We Feel Insignificant. There's a lot of different things that can make us feel insignificant. Like, like, like we don't have the right, we don't have the authority, we don't have the ability to come before someone so famous as God Himself. We're going to see that God in Psalm 139 is both immense and personal. And so if you have your Bible, open up to Psalm 139. If you didn't bring it with you, you can go grab one off the shelf right over here. Let's stand together as we read God's Word this morning. Psalm 139. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven... You're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not as dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You can be seated. There's an outline on the back of your bulletin. It might help you to follow along with the sermon if you're looking at that, and you can even take notes there. I don't know if you've ever known somebody who's brilliant in some area. Maybe they have their Ph.D. in something you can't even understand. And their knowledge about some things that, that you don't even understand are just huge and immense. They might spend their lives asking and answering questions like, what is the nature of the nuclear force that binds protons and neutrons into stable nuclei and rare isotopes? I don't even know what most of those words mean, but somebody is spending their life trying to figure that out and can give you a really, really good answer. But have you noticed that a lot of times people that are really smart in one area like that have really immense knowledge in one area? They're totally oblivious to like normal stuff. Like they can't even put on matching socks in the morning. 
right? And, and, and they can't even have a normal conversation. And they're usually the guys that they can't even figure out how to silence their phone when it starts ringing in public and they don't want it to, you know? They might have their PhD in one area, and their knowledge in one area is really immense, but when it comes to personal, detail kind of things, it's like they're living somewhere else. This is not so with our God. Our God has immense knowledge. Look at verses 1 through 5. Look at all these things that God knows. And I want you to notice how immense it is, but I also want you to notice how personal it is. It talks about me a lot in there. And I, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Listen, the creator of protons and neutrons who knows how they form together in stable nuclei, something, something. The God who made all that stuff, He knows when you sit down and when you rise up. And, and, and look a little bit later. It says, you discern my thoughts from afar. God knows what I'm thinking. A lot of times I don't even know what I'm thinking. God knows the words before they're even on my tongue. A lot of times words come out of my tongue and I don't even know what just happened. But God knows those words before they're even there. God's knowledge is immense, but it's also very personal. Right down to when we're sitting and when we're standing and the very words and the very coming out of our mouth and the very thoughts that are in our head. God's knowledge is immense and personal. And so what do we do with that? Look at verse 6. How do we respond to a great truth like that? Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What we're supposed to do as we consider the immense and personal knowledge of our God is we ought to sit and wonder about it and be amazed that we're never going to get it. But sit and wonder about it anyway. That is too wonderful for me. I can't attain it. I don't get that. I don't get, God, how you can know all that about her and him and me all at the same time. I don't get it. But it causes me to worship, and I hope it causes you to worship. God's knowledge is immense and personal. So is God's presence. Sometimes, do you ever feel like just getting away from everything? Maybe you've even felt at times in your life like running away from God. Maybe it's because of some deep shame and guilt. Maybe it's because you feel like he hasn't pulled through for you for whatever reason. Or maybe he's calling you to do something that you don't want to do. And you just want to run away from God. You want to have nothing to do with him. But according to verses 7 through 12, is that even possible? No. It's not possible to run away from God. He's a God who is present everywhere. And so David's going through all of these different places. He says, where shall I go? This is verse 7, from your spirit. Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. Listen, some of you might be in a very lonely place right now. You might feel all alone, and you need to be reminded of God's presence. Listen to all the lonely places that David is. If I make my bed in Sheol, in the grave, you're there. If I settle on the far side of the sea, I've moved far away from home, and I know nobody or nothing, guess what? God is present there. His presence is immense. It is everywhere at all time, but it's also personal. Like, He is where I am. We need to know that. And here's what that does. What is this truth? That God's 
presence is both immense and personal, what does that do for us? A couple of things that I just want to point out. One is, it frees us up as we make decisions. How many of you have a hard time making decisions? Go ahead, raise your hand. You have a hard time making decisions, okay? And, and for a lot of us, it's decisions that are non-moral decisions. You know what that means? That means, like, we're not trying to decide, should I steal this or not steal this? That's a moral decision. And, and the answer should be pretty clear and obvious. But there are a lot of other decisions that we try and make, and we want to make a decision that falls in line with God's will. And we fear so much sometimes that we could be outside of God's will that it's really hard to make a decision. Maybe it's about, like, what job should I take? What house should I buy? Where should I live? Like, all these different kinds of things. And we kind of freak out because we don't want to be outside of God's will. This is a very comforting truth to hold on to in those times, and that is this, that you are not going to go anywhere where God is not present. It's not like you're going to make the wrong decision and move to the wrong place, and all of a sudden, God is looking down and saying, uh-oh, where'd she go? Lost that one. God knows all things at all times, and His presence is everywhere. And so you cannot escape His presence. And that should be a comforting truth to you as you make decisions. God is present everywhere. We, you know, when we went through just the process of discernment, of trying to figure out where God was leading us, we were in a church that we had loved and served for a long time, and it seemed that God was leading us away from that somewhere else. And there's all sorts of options. You could go all sorts of different places, and the search committee here had all sorts of different options, okay? But the comforting thing to us in all that was, you know what, there was nowhere we were going to go that God wasn't present. We could even go to Wisconsin, and even there, God would be there, right? We didn't, by God's grace, end up in Wisconsin. Uh, And God led us pretty clearly here, but we had this assurance that anywhere we would go, God would be present and at work there. And this is good for us to hold on to. Again, if you're in a lonely season, I think this might also be a good truth to hold on to. That there's nowhere that you can go where you truly will be all alone. That wherever, whatever season of life you happen to find yourself in right now, God is present right there. We need to know that. Even the darkness is not as dark to Him. You might feel like you're in a really dark place right now. But even the darkness is not as dark to Him. He is there and He is the light. All right. Verses 13 to 16 speak of God's immense and personal creation. And when I say the word creation, some of you might immediately think of, when when you're thinking of being in awe of God's creation, you might think of going outside and looking at a vast landscape or going outside at night and looking up and seeing the starry sky and just being in wonder at the immensity of God's creation. And that's a great place to be. But look at verses 13 to 16. This is much more personal. Listen, for you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, 
when as yet there were none of them. So we know that the God who created planets and galaxies and all the beautiful landscape that we see also created us. Each individual human life has great significance and value because God has created it. And unfortunately, we live among a people who don't get that. I'm not sure that we get it all the time. I did a little bit of research and found out that a law was passed in 1940 in our country uh, and, and then amended later to, to update kind of the fines and, and that kind of thing uh, in 1972. And that law protects bald eagles. And the law says, and the amendment spells out, that anybody who would do any damage to any bald eagle, including taking an egg out of a bald eagle's nest, That is a federal crime and punishable by, for your first offense, $5,000 or one year imprisonment as a max. And for your second offense, $10,000 and not more than two years in prison. Felony convictions of doing something like taking an eagle's egg out of his nest carry a maximum fine of $250,000 or two years of imprisonment. And if you're an organization that does this, the fines double. That amendment was passed in 1972 and still holds today. In 1973, our country, the Supreme Court of the United States of America, heard a case called Roe v. Wade, and in that, made a decision that would protect the rights of women by allowing that babies that God was forming in their mothers to be killed and removed. Our country values bald eagles. And there's laws to go along with that. But somehow, we've, we've missed something very, very important. That is the, the unique, significant value of each and every human life that God is at work creating. So what do we do about that? This horrible thing that we call abortion that is the very destruction of a very personal life, a a little heart that's beating and a little thumb that can be sucked and brain that begins to work and that we can somehow take that away and say that that's okay. What can we do about that? Well, I mean, uh, when you give financially here, when, when you just put money in the plate, there's a number of different things that we're doing, many of them globally but also locally. And one thing locally is is called the Lighthouse Center of Hope. Uh, an organization right here in Iowa Falls that serves women and families who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy and supporting them so that they might give birth and be supported after that. Maybe you want to volunteer. I talked to the director at that place uh, just this week. She said they do need volunteers still occasionally, and they could use some funds. Uh, they can't any longer take cribs or, um, or car seats but a lot of moms need cribs or car seats, but because of all the changing laws and all that stuff, they can't take the donations of those items. And so when there's a need, they have to go out and buy a new one. And so they need funds to do that kind of thing. That might be something that you can do. You want a practical application of the sermon? Give them a call this week, 648-4198, okay? 648-4198. You can do something, be involved right here locally. But this truth that God's creation is immense and personal. We don't only look at that when it comes to the life of unborn people. We need to look at our own lives and recognize God's immense and personal creation in us because some of you struggle every day as you 
do something as simple as look in the mirror and you look at yourself and you wish that your nose had a different shape or your body had a different shape and you look and you're disappointed. You're unsatisfied or even ashamed with what God has made. The truth is that God deserves praise for what He has made. What if you looked in the mirror and said, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows that very well. Your value, your life has significance and value because you have been made by God. Some of you struggle with sickness and disease. You feel like your body is just broken and messed up in a lot of ways. You need this reminder as well. That God's eyes saw even your unformed substance, it says. And in His book were written every one of them the days that were formed for you. You know, I think it's amazing. You know, we've got a lot of things in our body that don't work quite properly because of the fall. But it's amazing how many things do work. Isn't it amazing to, to you that with all of the technology and all of the knowledge and all of the money that we put into medical research, that they can't come up with anything that's better than what God made? You get a prosthetic limb, it's not quite as good as the one that God made. You get a knee replacement, it doesn't last as long as God's initial knee placement, right? Like we can't, we can't outdo what God has already done. We are incredibly, fearfully, and wonderfully made, and that ought to cause us to worship God and give Him thanks. For us, I was in a, a class in college called Human Anatomy and Physiology. It stressed a lot of people out. I, I can memorize things pretty easily, so it was easy for me in that class. But what caused a lot of people stress in that class was, was, was that I'm going to have to take a test on this. You know what that class caused in me? Not stress, worship. I started learning a little bit about our body and how it works and how like. I just wanted to worship Jesus after that. That's what I wanted to do after human anatomy and physiology. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, and God's creation is both immense and personal. Look at verses 17 to 24. I love 17 to 18 because they're kind of a summary of everything that's come so far. God is both immense and personal in His knowledge, in His presence, in His creation, and now it brings the psalmist, David, to a moment of worship, and hopefully us too. In verse 17 he says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would number more than the sand. We ponder, we think about all this about God. It causes us to say, man, you know what? I am nothing like you, God. Isaiah, God says through Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, you might want to write that down. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, Neither are your ways my ways, declare the Lord. For as, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God's holiness, his, he, he is altogether different than us. That's what it means to be holy. But it's also, there's a very personal dimension to God's holiness. See that at the end of verse 18? As we think about all this, we think about God's thoughts and God's ways, God's immense and personal creation, and presence, and knowledge. It should amaze us. We should say with exclamation points and question marks after the end of verse 18, I awake, and I'm still with you? (laughs) That's the way I read that. Like, I'm awake, and I'm still with you? Like, I just woke up. I'm thinking of how immense and holy God is. How is it that I can wake up? That's amazing in itself. 
And as I awake, I'm still with you. How is it that you have not cast me aside, God? I awake, and I'm still with you. Now, this has been beautiful so far. Psalm 139 is one of the most beautiful psalms in the whole Psalter. Verses 1 through 6, you may have heard read as we gathered together to worship, as a call to worship. That's great. Psalms 7, or verses 7 through 12, you may have memorized to get you through a hard time of life, remembering that God is present everywhere. You may have memorized that. Psalm 13 to 16, you've probably seen a picture of a little baby that has one of those verses put on it. But then we get to Psalm 9, verses 19 through 22, and I am pretty sure that you can't find a pillow at your grandma's house that's got 19 to 22 cross-stitched in it. And you probably aren't going to go down to the living well and find some stationery with verses 19 to 22 on it. It's just not going to happen. Look at verses 19 to 22. You ever read these and wondered, what in the world is that doing there? This is so beautiful. And then all of a sudden, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred and I count them my enemies. What in the world is that doing there? Right? And I had to think through that more. Because I've, I honestly, I've, this, is, this is one of the Psalms. I didn't teach on Psalms many times to students, but this is one that I taught to students. I just skipped that part. That's what I did. Okay? But I'm not going to do that today because every word of God is true. And all of God's word is breathed out by God and useful for teaching and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness. And we believe that. So this is there for a purpose. In context, here's what I think. As I read this in context, here's what I see David doing. David is worshiping. Do you see how in those first verses his eyes are fixed? His gaze is fixed on God. And he is seeing God in all of his glory and splendor pondering the immense and personal knowledge and presence and creation of God. How vast is the sum of them? It's too wonderful for me to even think about. And David's eyes are up here. And then what I think happens is David remembers where he is. That he's not in heaven yet. And he looks out at the world that he lives in. And he sees that people are speaking of this God with malicious intent and they're using His name as a swear word and it disgusts Him. And He is mad. And I think we can learn something from that. Because all too often, we get a glimpse of the glory of God and then we look out at the world that we live in and we're not nearly disgusted enough by the sin that we see. We just shrug it off because we've seen it way too much. But I think if we were in the spot that David was in, that we get just a glimpse of the immense and personal glory of our God, that we would look out at the world and more often respond with anger. Say, this is not right. And that we would often even look in then, not just at the world, but our own hearts. And we would see the sin in our own lives. And we would say, I do not want to tolerate that. I am sick of that sin in my own life. 
But even with that, do you still have some questions? Like, is it okay? Can you say these things? Can you pray these things? Is it okay for you to say, God, would you slay the wicked? Is it okay for us to pray, God, do I not hate those who hate you? I thought we were supposed to hate the sin and love the sinner, right? What's, what's, this, what's this here for? I hate them with complete hatred. I mean, that's pretty bad. I hate them is bad enough, but I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So can we use, as Christians, all of these words that David uses as we pray and as we worship? And I would say no. Because something has happened between when David wrote this psalm, longing for God's justice to come. Something's happened since then. Namely, the cross of Christ. When we see sinners, those who are living as enemies of God or enemies of us, Jesus commands us not to pray against them, but to pray for them. We leave final judgment up to God. I want you to turn really quickly to Romans chapter 12. You know, there's a whole type of psalm called imprecatory psalms, and I don't know if we're going to get to one. Uh, it's this kind of psalm. I don't know if we're going to get to one this summer that, that covers all of these things, but this is an imprecatory part of one psalm where you're calling down curses on others. But I want you to look at Romans chapter 12. We're just going to look at three verses as we try to understand how is it that in light of the cross, in light of God's justice as seen on the cross, how do we interpret psalms like this? Look at Romans 12, starting in verse 19. Just three verses. Romans 12, 19 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So as we see people who are enemies of the cross, enemies of us, we respond to them with love and prayer. We never avenge ourselves Vengeance is mine, I will repay. We can still long for justice. That's, that's natural to us. And we ought to long for justice. We don't want to see the evil in this world continue. But we are not the final judge. Jesus is the final judge. And so we leave judgment up to him. And in the meantime, we pray. And we proclaim the gospel. And we trust that by God's grace, some people who are right now enemies of the cross could be overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit, be given a new heart and new mind as they trust in Jesus and are born again. That's what we do. I want to close with the last couple of verses here in Psalm 139. I love how this ends. David gets very personal, and so I want to get very personal with you as we end today. Maybe... You ought to go from here just praying the words of verses 23 and 24. Listen to them. Search me, O God, and know my heart. We sang that song. We sang that earlier today, but is this what you really want? Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Listen, it's easy to be overwhelmed and disgusted by the sin that we see out there in the world that we live in. But sometimes it's hard 
to recognize the sin that dwells in here in our own hearts. When we look at the the sin out there, we want justice to reign. We want God's wrath to come upon the evil. But when we look in here, we're not so sure that we really want that, do we? My, My hope is that we would come and ask God to do this today. Say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Check it out to see if there's any grievous, any way in me that would be offensive to you. And is there a way in you that is offensive to Him? Yes. Let's be honest. If we got what we really deserved, we would receive God's just judgment and we would forever suffer in the eternal torment of the fires of hell. That's what we would get if we got justice. How do you escape that judgment? Listen, that's the path that you're on unless you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. How do you escape that? You don't do it by church, try, you know, coming to church, trying hard to be a better person. A lot of people are trying hard to be better people. That's not how you gain it. You do it by letting the Holy Spirit come. Would you ask, some of you need to do this today need to ask the Holy Spirit to come and say, would you show me? And Maybe he's been stirring that already in your heart this morning, that he's been showing you that if you're honest with yourself, you're honest with him, there's wickedness in your heart that you have not turned from, you've not repented of, maybe never in your life. And what you need to do today as you've gotten a glimpse of the glory of our God, seen his great glory and his holiness, and you've recognize that your holiness is nothing like His holiness. You are not righteous as He is righteous. Then what you ought to do today is you ought to come before God and repent. Turn from your sin. Have your mind changed about your sin and trust in Jesus. Let Him be your Savior, your Rescuer, and your Lord. Some of you need to do that today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And when I start praying, if the worship team could come up. But after I pray and they're coming up, they're going to lead us in a song. If God has been stirring in your heart, and and you maybe need to come to faith in Jesus today, or you need to just repent of some sin and turn to Jesus, then I'd love to pray with you. So I'm not going to sing. You all can sing. I'm not going to sing. I'm just going to sit in the front row and leave an open chair next to me. You want to come and pray with me? You come and do that as we're singing a song. For many of us, we've, we've done this. We've trusted in Jesus. He has become our Savior and our Lord. And what we need to be doing is we need to be making the words of this song the prayer of our heart. Here's some words that we're going to sing. O great and mighty one, with one desire we come, that you would reign, that you would reign in us. We're offering up our lives a living sacrifice that you would reign, that you would reign in us. That's what we want. We want God to reign. We want Him to rule. He is the King of all things. And we want him, we want you to submit yourself to him as your king. Allow him to be king and master over your life.